Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Dr. Pamela Dennis. Thanks for joining us, Pamela. I'm delighted. Thank you. Before we, we jump ahead in our conversation... Tell our listeners about some of the updates in Sandler. Our regular clients will have noticed that we moved our training center. Our main training is now being done up in Blue Ash, Ohio, at 4555 Lake Forest Drive, Suite 650. And here in December, we have a full calendar of Monday and Friday, 8 to 10 a.m. classes. In January, we're probably going to be moving the classes to Tuesdays and Thursdays, from 9 to 11, and you'll be seeing that on your calendars when they get emailed out to you. Now let me tell all of, all of our listeners a little bit about Dr. Pamela Davis. For the past 30 years, uh, she's been helping some of the world's top leading success, the world's top leaders successfully lead their organizations. She's worked with global 100 companies such as GE, which is going to be Cincinnati-based, Merck, J.P. Morgan, GM, BHP. It's BHP Billiton. 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 Okay. And then Testra. And she's also worked with emerging companies, closely held partnerships in the private sector. She speaks to international and national organizations on leadership and change with an emphasis, emphasis on leading transitions. Pam is affiliated with the Women's Council of the Lead School of Business which supports developing women in leadership at the University of Colorado. And Pam holds a Ph.D. in organizational development and education from the University of Colorado. Pam lives in Boulder and part-time in San Diego, California. That's a great place to live, San Diego, California. (laughs) Just had one of my clients talk to me today about coming back from uh, San Diego. So, Pam... Why don't you, in your own words, tell our listeners what motivated you to write a book about how to sell your business. The book is called uh, The Express Way to Selling Your Company with Pride and Profit, Exit Signs. What 
What motivated you to write this kind of a book? Well, I feel like I've had a charmed life. I have worked in big companies. I started my own small consulting firm. It grew to a huge endeavor with clients all over the world and offices in Melbourne, Australia, San Francisco, and Boulder, lovely Boulder, Colorado. Um, I loved what I was doing, and then I sold it. And I was very pleased with what that provided me. It gave me a great retirement income. It gave me a chance to look back on a business that was still going strong without me. Um, I felt like I had done everything I wanted to do. And then I started meeting people who were really struggling to sell their their businesses or their middle-sized businesses. And I started working with some smaller companies and partnerships especially or privately held consulting, engineering consulting firms. They were just struggling. And I thought, why is that? Ours went so well. So I started looking at the research that says, oh, my gosh, there are, everybody knows they need to have a great exit plan, but less than 15% of people actually have one. And I started looking at why was that the case. So I decided I was going to write a book about how can you get your heart, your head, and your company ready to be sold. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the first book that you've written? Uh, yes, it is. It's my first book, and nobody can understand why I wrote a book on how to sell your business when, in fact, my my whole career has been working with large and small companies on organizational change. But selling a company is one of the biggest changes that an owner will go through in their life, besides getting uh, married and having kids. Right. And uh, it's one of the things that most owners are most uncomfortable talking about. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's scary when they, they've done some really interesting, uh, sort of on the academic side here, they've done some amazing research on what gets behind the inability of people to put together an exit strategy. And there's kind of three reasons. One is people are so busy running their business, keeping it healthy, growing it, that they don't feel they have time. Mm-hmm. A whole a whole slew of folks think, uh, it's too early. I don't need to do that now. You know, I have five, ten years I don't need to do that. And then finally, for an awful lot of folks, they don't want to face that. It's like, I don't know how to write a different name badge. My badge has doesn't have my name on it. It has my company name. So who am I if I don't have my company anymore? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of psychology involved in what it takes to get ready to sell your company. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could share for our listeners, uh, some of the story of how you sold your business. You, you, you had a practice, a consulting practice. Uh, usually those are difficult to sell uh, because they depend on the the principal uh, who's doing all the work, whose name is on the business. Uh, yeah. How did you manage to sell your practice? Well, it, it's even when you're starting a company, you have to understand or be pretty clear on what your end game is. And most most entrepreneurs, when they're asked to put their business plan together, they're asked to put down what's your end game strategy. How do you plan to leave? And so from the time I started saying I wanted to have my own business, I said, well, for what purpose? You know, what's my, I never used the word exit strategy at the time, but I said, how do I want this to end? And I was always very clear that I wanted to build an equity business that I could sell and have it continue after I left. That's pretty unusual for a consulting firm, especially one in the field we were in, because an awful lot of people just like being independent consultants. So I often tell them. An equity firm. 
as a consultant? Meaning I, okay, meaning I wanted to have a company that I could sell and get a return on my investment that I would actually have built-in equity, just like you have in your house, so that when I sold, I would get that equity plus a return on that investment that I'd made all these years. So when I started my company, my first goal was, how do I make sure I can keep my income a certain level having left a large corporation? Mm-hmm. There's two. There's kind of two paths that an, a, a startup takes. One is, I want to build a business it's going to pay me a great salary every year, and I can write off a bunch of taxes and investment, and I then I can take the money and invest it how I want, you know, in, por- in an investment portfolio or my kid's education or whatever. The other track is I'm going to start a business so I can develop this entity that's bigger than me so that I have something to actually sell, whether that's hard assets or soft assets, a customer list, intellectual property, doesn't matter. And for me, I always wanted that second path. I wanted to build a business that I could eventually sell and it would keep going after me. If okay. you aren't clear, you aren't clear on which of those paths you're taking when you start your company, then you go back, you kind of get schizophrenic. Sometimes you think, oh, I need to hire this kind of person or maybe I need to have this kind of software platform to you know, do business or maybe I need this marketing strategy. Choosing one of those two paths helps you know how to budget, how to invest, how to hire. And that's how we start. That's how I started. Always knew I wanted to have a company that had multiple partners. Everybody had skin in the game. I wanted to have global customers. I wanted to have intellectual property that people would then pay for when I sold the business. Okay, so so you start out with with the... Uh, a decision in mind that you were going to develop intellectual property that could be sold. Correct. Well, they could be licensed in many cases. Licensed. And then then you also uh, set out with a design uh, to create partners in the business who would be the natural natural successors or buyers uh, to try to uh, sell, sell your shares. Right, and then we got what I always say is number one is no understand what your end game is. Um, number two is get a great advisory team in place so that you can so that you have a plan, and that's one of the most important things we did. We got a great advisory team in place. We had our CPA, we had a corporate counsel, and then I hired a really well-known exit strategy guy out of Denver, and we worked with them for about six or eight months. Um, to put an exit strategy together so that everybody in the business, at the time there were only three partners, um, so that we could start to exit the founders over a certain period of time and bring new partners in. They knew what their investment had to be to to, to buy into the business because we knew we wanted to sell it to internal owners. We had, an, we had several offers to sell to external larger consulting firms, mm-hmm. but that, that's never what we wanted to do. We we so, just thought we'd lose too much of our own soul. Right. So when when did you bring in the uh, the partners who were going to be uh, the ones who eventually bought you out at the beginning or sometime after that? We phased it in. So I had a sole proprietorship for two and a half years, and then I brought a partner in, and then two years later I brought a partner in, and then three years later we bought brought two partners in. By the time I left, when I started the build business, 
It was just me. And when I sold the business, there were six partners and 25 contract consultants that worked with us across the globe. Wow. And we, at that point, we had three offices, very low overhead, enormously profitable. Um, it, you know, we had some of the best clients in the world working what we were working with them, and it was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. So it, it mm-hmm. would have been it would have been hard for most owners to leave, and it was very seductive to stay one more year because mm-hmm. we had really big we had a, an enormous potential expansion of a contract that would have taken us for two more years at about two million dollars. Um, and and everybody said, oh, you can't leave, you can't leave, you need to stay for two more years. Um, but we had a plan, and we did. I did extend for one year to make sure certain things happened. That our intellectual property was was um, protected. That the, one of our junior, so junior partners, could take over my clients. I mean, part of what I write in the book is all first about um, how do you put a plan in place, and then second piece is how do you make your company sustainable. And most people would not take one of their junior partners and say, you're going to take my place with our biggest client, unless they did it a year in advance. And so we now, were very proactive. Let's talk about the uh, the idea of partnership. Uh, uh-huh. When you uh, talked to the individuals to become partners, did you say to them, Something like you put uh, twenty five thousand in or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in, and you're buying a partnership, or did it happen in a different way? Did they earn their partnerships? Uh, in some cases, with younger people, um, we had them doing they it was part cash and part um, earn in, mm-hmm. but for the most part, when we brought in a senior person, um, we you know, sometimes we recruit them from an internal position in a company or sometimes there were other consultants that we brought in, they would actually have a year to buy in at a certain amount. And we had our formula for the business valuation and how much was the company worth, and it was updated every year with our CPA and evaluator. So we were pretty rigorous. So when somebody said, what do you mean you want to $150,000, we could show them what the... Um, growth rate had been and what our book of business was going forward. And we always had a promise that no matter where somebody came from, we would keep their first year salary income whole. So whether they came as from a principal of a junior high school who was making $50,000 or they came as an internal vice president of something and they came into our firm, we said for the first, we will guarantee that for the first year you will be whole. Now, here's what it takes for you to buy into the business. And it was the same for everybody. So we didn't have to change it year to year if we brought new partners in because we had this exit strategy. Okay. That made it uh, a lot more logical. Logical and sane, I I would call it, because... and for the exiting partner, for the exiting partner, since I'll just talk about me as the founder, when I left, um, one of the things we wanted to make sure was I didn't just leave, say bye, but that I had put things in place that would allow the company to continue to run successfully, that we had um, 
that I continued as sort of an ambassador for the company for the first year so that mm-hmm. any customer relationships that needed to be tended and needed to be shored up, you know, I wasn't abandoning a key client and just turning it over to some new partner. We had a transition plan for every partner so that when I left, the my, my earnout, if you want to call it that, it was a certain cash buyout, but then the next two years when I was paid was based on certain revenue targets being met. So I still had to help the business before I left, make sure they had a two-year runway to be successful. It was important for them and their continuity, and it was important for me for my retirement income. And, so, there are, you know, there are a million ways to set up an exit strategy. That's why you work with great advisors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've seen... Uh... Uh, a, a lot of a few good plans and a lot of really bad ones over the, the past 25 years here at Sandler. Uh, when I talk to some people, it's it's really amazing. Uh, I'm thinking of one 86 year old guy who runs a um, multi probably 150 million dollar a year software company. Still comes into work every day. Uh, and still thinks it's probably uh, 1992. Uh, <laughs> the, the the exit strategy just doesn't some seem to be there. It sounds like you were involved with your business for another two years to make sure they hit revenue targets, which meant they could uh, pay you out on the trailing end. It's kind of similar to uh, plans that I've heard in the accounting world. Um, or law firms. Yeah, our law firms are very similar. I didn't have to set foot into the office. For me, I was able to put in place a two-year contract that provided that revenue forecast for the next two years. So I didn't actually have to go in and consult anymore because I had stayed that extra year to make sure we had that two-year runway and we had a key senior partner going to take over that that book, that piece of work, which was huge. Um, you know, it's interesting. Go ahead. Well, you're in organizational development, right? Correct. With partnership. Uh, there have been several that I, uh, where I've worked with junior partners, and uh, I just can't think of one that, that came out okay for the junior partners. <laughs> oh, really? That's unfortunate. Yeah. Our, my company is still going. They still have clients, legacy clients, as well as new ones they've developed all over the world. They're adding, mm-hmm. continuing to add new partners. Some have left and some are new, and but the original uh, two that were there when, or two of the four that were there when I left are um, still going strong. Um, they just took on a big new client out of Atlanta. So you you can do an awful lot. It's it's tough when you have less than a year mm-hmm. um, because you have you have fewer um, options you don't have the chance to develop a lot of internal capability to take over the business if you've only got a year. You have, um, you may be able to do some great um, sales strategies to a third party or to a competitor that wants to buy you or even a supplier who wants to vertically integrate. You, you never know, but you just have fewer, you just have less latitude in what you can do. That's why I say, you know, give yourself at least two years to really put a plan and execute it. If your goal is not just great profit, but you want that company to continue after you leave. And that's Good. part of what exercise is about. It's about three goals. Profit, 
leaving a business you're really proud of because it's sustainable. And then the third part is understanding you have some kind of a path forward. You just haven't right. jumped off the cliff. Right. That's a, bad, a business that continues after you. That's what I like to refer to as legacy. Uh, right. Pam, we're going to take a, a, a two-minute commercial break here, and uh, we'll be right back. Company owners and sales managers, are you tired of cutting your price to get the deal? Wouldn't you like to have a better way? Wouldn't you want to improve your margins? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523 to see if there's a better way for you. This is a message for professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult. It takes effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training familiar to champion athletes. It builds winners in the world of business. We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing, I want to think it over. If you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth, 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is, their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Dr. Pamela Dennis. Uh, Pam, uh, as you go back and think about the consulting practice that you sold, uh, was the value in the practice that allowed it to be sold the intellectual property itself, or was it something else? Uh, no, it was not. Well, first of all, when you're consulting, you and especially if you have a training component, which you do, um, there is only so much shelf life in training materials or training approaches or mental models or, you know, sales algorithms and so on. So you're constantly having to refresh what that intellectual property is, uh, especially if it's soft, like training programs are soft, as opposed to software, which I would say is medium soft, uh, as opposed to hard assets like your building. It's your housing, maybe you own the building. So for right. us, we rented, we rented a building. We weren't, we didn't have any hard assets. We had intellectual, we had training materials. We had um, a few software instruments we had developed that we then sold or licensed to our clients. But really what we sold was the fact that we worked with the, the largest and most significant companies in the world. 
and our reputation. So if we wanted to sell to an external buyer, they would look at us and say, you've worked with GE and Jack Welch for 10 years. You've worked with Telstra, the largest, the telephone company of Australia for the last three years, and you have a two-year contract that's already been signed going forward. That was worth a certain amount of goodwill and revenue. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, 20 years of 20-plus growth rate every year. So there was not any volatility in our um, marketing and our business development. It was pretty stable so that we could prove whether it was an internal buyer or an external buyer what our business was worth because our track record was so pristine. But, yes, mm-hmm. we had intellectual pro- property. We we licensed one of our programs for half a million dollars to a particular client, and then we would license it somewhere else, would be tailored to that that new client, but the the core of the intellectual property we had made we had made sure that we had protected it, so mm-hmm. that we had something to sell. Okay, uh, it, it's, it was a great strategy. Uh, not everyone can. Uh, now the urgency to sell that, that we see in some some sellers is where they want to sell their business in. Uh, a year or less, and you know they're uh, let's say they're less than ten million dollar a year business, less than twenty five employees, uh, and they they wind up going to these uh, business brokers. I'm using that, that term in quotation marks. Uh, a lot of those those service businesses uh, wind up not being sold, or the seller has to take back uh paper uh as a seller financed uh operation how do you think people can avoid that Mm. uh one is my rule of thumb is don't wait till the last minute and then make sure you really have put down most people underestimate what their um what their assets are They'll they'll either say, oh well, that's not really intellectual property. That's da 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 da. da. Or, or on the other extreme, they will overestimate. Oh, for sure, my business is worth dollars. Well, there's never been a business of their size that's run by one person with three employees that is all dependent on the owner that's ever sold in, in today's market or whatever market for ten million dollars. So there's two sides of that coin. One is not being not having enough. Um, assistance to understand what the true value of their company is and they underestimate it and two, overestimating it. it. So in one sense, the urgency to sell is because we've waited too long. So I, I like to tell people the story that suppose you're in your neighborhood, year after year, there's one or two houses that come on the market. And you can do comps around those. You say, oh, yeah, looks like our house is worth such and such. And then what if you heard that in three years, a dozen homes in your neighborhood are going to be on the market? And in two more years, 24 homes were going to be for sale on the market. Would you wait three or five years to start fixing your house up, to figure out how you're going to downsize, how you're going to declutter, where you're going to put your maintenance dollars? Of course not, because... You want to be at the top tier of homes that sell in your neighborhood with that kind of competition. You need to start working on your house now. The same thing with a business. It, it, it's striking to me that 
over the last 25 years, about 20,000 people, business owners a year, 20,000 business owners a year turn 70. Mm -hmm. In 2015, in 2015, the number of business owners turning 70 will be 120,000 people a year. And Mm. by 10 years from now, there'll be 180,000 business owners turning 70. Imagine what that's going to do to the value of companies in such a highly competitive market. You're going to so, have to be yeah. you got to be at the top. Yeah, you have to be at the top, but so many different businesses being available, as well as, you know, if, if I was uh, 50 years old and I was looking to buy a business, uh, I might look at a franchise uh, or, or one of these other businesses, but you know, it's hard to uh, prove what the value is of a business. Cash flow is is one of the is one of the value markers, uh, and contracts for continuation. Right. Um, but the value of the intellectual property that uh, someone has added, or the value of the customer list, uh, if it's not made up of General Electrics and uh, Sony's uh, and the largest companies in the in the world. Uh, makes that company uh, client list, I think, less valuable, doesn't it? It does, especially if, and especially for instance, in a, um, a service business, whether that's engineering consulting or environmental consulting or training and development, doesn't matter. When too much of the intellectual property and too much of the customer relationship resides in the owner, the founder, or the mm-hmm. top two or three. Then, and you're talking about those folks leaving, all of a sudden the value of that business is a shadow of what its potential is going forward. I've talked with private equity groups, and they look at, okay, where do we want to invest our money in um, smaller companies? And when they they can see that it's so owner-centric, they just walk away because there's nothing there other than the owner. Mm. So you, you you can't get your company ready to be truly ready to be sold um, in for its full value or as close to full value as possible if we don't give ourselves the lead time. There's a really interesting a guy, John Zayak, who's a, I don't know if he's a broker or business development, um, small business manager, advisor, but he did some research that said most, most businesses who exit with less than six months of advanced planning receive 50 to 70% of their potential value. I don't want to leave that. I don't want to leave that much on the table. It's worth it to me to plan in advance to get the most I can from my business. Hmm. Uh, And I know you're not on this side of the equation, but uh, for those uh, 70-year-old business owners who want to sell, where do they find the buyers if they're not inside their company? Um, well, you know, there's two rules of thumb. One of the sections in my book talks about to broker or not to broker. Um, I, I met with a CEO of a, of a probably 400-person, $40 million uh, manufacturing firm, electronic. And he said, at any given time, I know the six to eight companies that will be interested in buying me. I said, how do you know that? go to industry trade shows. I keep in touch with them. So some of them are my customers. Some of them are my suppliers. And they're constantly asking me, 
so when are you going to sell your company? But he always is pretty clear because of also the technology where his company fits in the value chain of potential buyers. Then I asked mm-hmm. him, what happens if you get hit by a truck? You know, do you have a succession plan for who's going to follow you and you know who knows the same information you do about potential acquirers? He said, I guess there'll be 400 people out on the street. He was so owner-centric in his business, and yet he was so smart to know that at any given time, I know the 68 companies that might be interested in buying he knew where his company fit in the value chain. Mm-hmm. He knew where it fit, but he didn't have a uh, a strategy to maximize the value of the company, nor to uh, come up with a timetable to buy out, to sell yeah, out. Yeah, it's, it's it's a shame. And uh, you know, on the other hand, I interviewed a fellow who was the uh, you know entrepreneur of the year for I won't say what city, but it was a good sized city. And when he he knew also who would be most interested in the technology and intellectual property that his company had had, uh, created and thought he had done a brilliant job of picking the right buyer. Big, huge acquisition. And within a year, they had dismantled his company and sold off the parts and there were hardly any folks left in the business. And he was crushed. I mean, to talk to him today, he's still just so angry. And he thought he had done, he thought he knew who the right folks were to buy his company, but he only looked at one, one, at one list. And we talk about, I talk about two lists in, in your company. One is the technical list. The other is the culture and leadership list. So you can go through the finances, the marketing, technology fit. It's a good strategic fit between them and us. You go to business in the same way. Yep, that's all a great fit. And the other side is how What's the culture of the company that's about to buy you? And is it going to be a fit for your company? What's the leadership like? What are their values? Is that going to fit with your folks? It, it doesn't matter if that fit exists, if all you want is the upfront money. But my book is based on having three goals. Great profit, pride in leaving a legacy in a sustainable company, and a path forward. And when you don't have that second one, that's just, I want my company to go on beyond me, you usually will pick not do as good a job on the due diligence of your buyer. Mm-hmm. And just look for the buyer that's going to offer the most mm-hmm. cash up front to the old owner. Yep. That's, that's, I think that's what makes exit plans different. It's for people like us who are in our, you know, in our 60s who have, who have spent a lot of time growing our companies and making them healthy, bailing them out if necessary at times. And we don't want to see them just either shut the doors or go to somebody who's going to decimate them. I, I played golf with a woman who had a small retail company, retail store. Fabulous, very value-centered. She's a good golfer, too. And I said, oh, so you sold your company? She said, yeah. I said, how'd it go? She said, it went great, except that I sold it to the wrong buyer. I went, why? Well, I thought I knew the person, but within a year, she had taken all of my seasoned employees who were faced to the customers with a cancer treatment um, retail store and laid them all off and brought in hourly workers. She said, thank mm-hmm. goodness I didn't have, I did not have an earn-out strategy. It was all cash fund, or I would have no income coming from that business anymore. Right, that would have killed the... Yeah, so you know, it's, a, it's one of the pitfalls that sellers get seduced by the size of the check and forget what all their objectives are. Um, Okay, Uh, we're going to take a a short commercial break here. 
We're going to listen to uh, Sandler Rule number 25, and uh, we'll be back in about uh, two minutes. I'm Roger Wentworth with Sandler Training, and I want to talk to you today about rule number 25. If you want to know the future, bring it back to the present. You see, it's a common scenario that prospects ask us to do some work prior to really engaging with us. It might be groundwork, it might be an estimate with some solutions, it might be a site survey, it might be a working diagram with some detailed analysis of how we're going to solve their problems. And in our eagerness to please them, we jump at the chance because it allows us to show our expertise. The problem is, we don't really know what's going to happen next. You see, your prospects want to know what you know without making any commitment to you whatsoever. And the typical salesperson is willing to do that. That's when they become an unpaid consultant. So if you want to know the future, bring it back to the present. When they ask you to do one of these bits of work, play the let's pretend game. It sounds like this. Okay, Bob, let's pretend we do that. And our solution fits everything you need. And it really works well for you. What happens next? Now, as a side note, make sure you define everything. But when you ask this question, what happens next? Watch your prospect closely because what they're about to do is to tell the future. The rule is, if you want to know the future, bring it back to the present. This is Mike Roth. I am back with uh, Dr. Pamela Dennis. Dr. Dennis, let's, uh, let's talk for a minute, if we could, about uh, the the whole question of business brokers. Uh, over the years here at Sandler Training, we have trained some business brokers, and uh, people have talked to me about uh, the, the practices that they use where they want to tie an owner up with a one-year exclusive listing agreement, whether or not they actually sell the business. And my advice is always when you see a, a deal like that to walk away because uh, there's no there's no monopoly on information, so that the uh, the, the the broker uh, is tying you up unnecessarily, and may 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 or may not uh, actually bring a buyer to the table. What do you think? Yeah, I, I personally did not use a broker, but that's because we were selling to internal um, partners, and so our strategy was to um, make that work and not not have to use an external broker. But on the other hand, there's a place for them, but usually I like back-end transactions, meaning when you sell the business, the percentage of the price of the business goes to the broker, just like with a realtor in that sense, as opposed to an upfront um, commitment of dollars, and then you hope to God it's going to sell. Right, right. I've seen both. I've seen it done both ways. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the business broker takes his fee out of the sale proceeds, uh, whether or not he brought the buyer to the table, right. uh, which psychologically bothers me. Uh, the, the other the other issue uh, 
which is worth a couple of words here, because you you kind of went around it, is the ESOP plan, Employee Stock Ownership Programs. We've we've had a couple of clients over the years and a couple of guests here on the radio show uh, that have put together these ESOP plans where employees uh, essentially become the owners of the company so the originator of the of the engineering firm or the uh architectural firm can step out uh what do you think right. of those as as a strategy to continue a business well um they're expensive to run they are wonderful when they work but you better be clear that that's your exit strategy and that means that you have to be able to turn the reins over of your business much sooner than you think you're ready to do often. So we're going to have I developed a group of um, internal leaders that can start to step up and take over. Let's say you're going to buy out three of the founders through an ESOP. They can't just leave. They can't say, oh, well, you know, a year from now I'd like to step out, so I hope we have enough money in the trust that can buy me out. But just as the... An external buyer wants to know you've got the bench strength, you've got your intellectual property protected, you have great processes in place that make it turnkey. It isn't all owner-centric in making this business run smoothly and profitably. An ESOP, or an employee stock option program or trust, they need to have the same due diligence and tell their owners, their founders, uh-uh, you can't leave in 18 months until the following three things are in place because we need to make sure it's a viable company too. So uh, it's a, I worked with a small um, a company that was being bought by a large aerospace company. And I was involved in the due diligence of, of the acquiring company, looking at this little company. And so 10, 15 years later, I called them up as I'm writing my book and I said, hey, you know, what do you think you learned from what you did in developing your, um, you know, your strategy to sell to this very large aerospace company? He said, well, you know, we originally had an ESOP. And then when we realized, one, we were never going to be able to grow as fast as we needed to, so we needed to be acquired by a larger firm, we had to then undo the ESOP. So you need to be really careful when you set up uh, the ESOP that that really is the strategy you're committing to because it's difficult and expensive to undo it midstream. Yeah. Uh, there was an engineering company here in Cincinnati that uh, went ESOP, and then a few years ago uh, another firm, uh, another engineering firm, uh, bought out the ESOP. Uh-huh. And then all the employees... Uh, became employees of this other firm from a, a different city. Uh, right. In that process, the fellow who was the uh, president of the uh, ESOP kind of lost his seat. <laughs> and yeah, sure. uh, today he runs around as someone you would call a salesman. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, so he's for the company. What's that? Yes, he stayed with the company uh, after the acquisition. Wow. And, but he, but his responsibilities were uh, radically changed. That might not have been okay with uh, a lot of people, and I think he's got a, a a termination date in his. So let's, you know, I think it's interesting, maybe interesting to your reader, to your listeners, 
to think about the role that an owner might play after he leaves his company. Because if you want to go explore that. Sure. Let's talk about that. Here in Cincinnati, we have, we have a great many family-owned companies. Uh, some of them getting good advice. A great many don't get any advice. And a great many get bad advice, in my opinion. So what do we say to the uh, to the owner-operator who's active in his business every day, who's reaching uh, 60 years of age, knows that at some point in time he's got to uh, get out himself, doesn't have, may or may not have family members in the business. Um, what, what do we suggest to, to, to this fellow or lady? A business that they started from the ground up 20 years ago, fairly successful. Uh, you know, it's so sad, Mike. I, I read somewhere that a year after somebody, in most cases, a year after a business is sold, 75% of owners wish they hadn't sold. That's, that makes me want to weep. And part of it is they don't know what they're going to do next. Or second, they think what they're going to do next is not a match with what the new owner or the new um, partners want to see them for as their role. So in my in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about you know five roles that an owner might play after they close, post close on the business. Why don't you take and our listeners is, through those five roles? Well, one is the role I play, which I call the the um, picture on the wall, and so you're kind of the ambassador for your business. And you are the liaison at the golf course. You're the liaison in individual in industry meetings. You continue to promote your business, but you have no active role in the business or on a board. You're truly an ambassador. When my dentist sold his practice to the new dentist, there is a picture, literally a picture on the wall of the dentist and his wife, who is the hygienist, and a little caption that talks about the values that they brought to that company. And when I walk in the new practice, it gives me a great sense of continuity to see, you know, Rob's picture on the wall and know that they still value what he did when he built that company. So that's one role, ambassador. The role you just talked about is what I would call the specialized employee. So maybe you have somebody who is, this was in a sports retail company where the, when the father sold his company to his two sons, his specialized role for one year was taking care of one customer because it was a tricky handoff. And so his job was to be the sales contracts, customer relations guy for this particular big customer until mm-hmm. the sons, you know, came up to speed could have the same kind of, because, you know, in small businesses, it's about the relationship. It's not about, you know, the techie stuff. It's really about a relationship. Um, another role I talk about is the non-owner operating manager. So sometimes a private equity group will buy your company or invest heavily in it and become 51% owners, and they want you there to run the operation. But you don't get to, you don't have big financial decisions to make. You are involved in the long-term investment strategies. That's what the private equity group is doing. But you're there to make sure the company continues to run. And you may still have some degree of ownership, but you're not a majority owner anymore. 
Okay, that's a step back. Yep, and then the the two other roles um, is everybody often thinks, oh, well, when I'm gone, when I finish selling, I'll be a consultant to the business, and they'll just put me on retainer. Mm -hmm. Not. It hardly ever works well that way because consultants have supposedly no power other than to advise and recommend, but a former owner thinks they should be listened to and obeyed. (laughs) So it's not usually a good fit. And then mm-hmm. finally, you know, you might want to, I, I had a great interview. I interviewed a number of people for the book, and one of them was a CEO of a very successful greeting card company. Just a peach of a man. His son and his, his two sons and his daughter had been fetched up to learn to learn the business, take it over eventually. And when he left, he truly left the running of the business to those three kids. And he was a board member. And he Mm -hmm. sat on the family board because he was able to let go of the power without letting go of the governance. And and that's a subtle difference. I don't have to be there, you know? So I I think what's difficult is understanding what's your real motivation. Is your motivation to maintain relationships? That's one kind of role you might play. If your motivation is to keep things humming along, that's another kind of uh, role. But then you got to make sure you've negotiated that role with whoever the buyer is. Right. Let me let me give you a, an example. Uh, real world happened to me. Uh, my accountant was getting uh, up in his years, and he sold his accounting practice to a another accountant who I didn't have a relationship with, wouldn't recognize him. I passed him on the street, and uh, my old accountant was supposedly kept on to introduce the uh, the old accounts to the new practice. Uh, the first introduction I got was a uh, read more like a demand letter for my tax information. Uh, so, and, and a and a new contract between me and the new firm, which was different than the terms and conditions that I operated with the old firm. And uh, when I got that letter in the mail and didn't get a phone call from the old guy and didn't get a phone call from the new guy, uh, I went shopping for a new accounting firm. <laughs> so. That that, yeah. that revenue base that they had gotten from me for ten years just kind of went away because they, in, in the transition, you know, I felt like I was being hit across the face with a with a steel glove. I so, wish I could remember off the top of my head what happens to customers when um, I just wrote a blog on it. It's something like one of the one or the, the first or the second most critical reason why acquisitions fail to meet their objectives is one, bad culture fit, and two, the poorly exercised transition of customer tra- uh, retention. So people yeah, don't was, put a customer retention was, was execution. We've got to take a, a short commercial break here, and we're going to listen to uh, a couple more Sandler commercials. We'll be back in about two minutes. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. 
The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is, their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523 or check our website at rothconsulting.net. When you hear about a typical sales training program, does it usually involve a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced sandless sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. Typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Finding power in reinforcement. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Dr. Pamela Dennis. Uh, Pam, uh, perhaps you could go over with our listeners who are contemplating a future sale of their business. Uh, what are the steps they should take in this path to the sale, to a successful sale? Well, first of all, they should buy my book. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, I, I, assume, I, I assume the book is available on Amazon. It's on, available everywhere on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore, Schmack. Mashwords. I'm trying it, to cover it, all the bases. Is it also available as a uh, audible list book, so it's you can, you can listen to it? Not yet. Not yet. It's been out a month. It's only been out a month. Only been out a month. Okay. Uh, and if someone has a question for you after they read the book, uh, are you open to taking an email from uh, listeners? You bet. In fact, if you. Um, Part of my reason for writing the book is not because I want to make a million dollars selling books. That's not my objective. My objective is to get the 22.7 million small and medium-sized businesses to be thinking about how to get ready to sell their companies. So if mm-hmm. I could get, you know, 200, if I could get 20,000 business owners to the book, buy the book, I don't care, but start working on their exit strategy now, I would be world. That would be my legacy. So in Exit Signs, which you can buy in a number of different ways, but it is not audible yet, there is a decision tree. Because some people like to have things very numerical and very rational, um, analytical, and others like it to be narrative and telling stories. So I've tried to get both of these things in here. But in the mm-hmm. back of the book is a decision tree that says if you're going to sell your business, you start with one, question number one. And if you say yes or no, go this way. And then if you answer another question, you go X or Y, depending on what your answer is. Oh, so that's, that's very, Yeah, it's a great little, you know, decision tree. And it starts with the first question, do you want to leave your business? Are you really mentally ready? And if the answer is yes, okay, go here. How soon do you want to do it? Less or more than two years? But if you say, I'm not sure, maybe I'm on the you'll see a big stop sign that says, Mm -hmm. 
Heed with caution because you're going to waste a whole bunch of your time and other people's time. Thinking you're ready to sell your business, you'll get down to the point of execution of uh, terms and conditions, and you'll back out. Yeah, you know what I tell the the business owner who tells me, uh, I'm not sure if I want to sell my business. I tell them, it's time for you to hire a chief operating officer, a new company president to replace you, and you become a CEO or chairman of the board. And yeah. Be there, but train someone else to actually run the business. Hire someone else to, to run the business. Bring someone up yeah. in the organization who's already there. Right, right. Bench strength is huge. And, and development planning, uh, if you really want to leave your business for some other people to run internally, even if you're selling to a third party, one of the things that third parties, because I've served on due diligence teams for the acquiring company. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you what they're looking for is they're looking for the minus signs. Okay, here's the actual financial value of this company, including goodwill and IP and assets and so forth. Now, where can we find minus signs that we can discount the value? And one of the things they look at is bench strength. And if you don't, if it's, again, if it's customer, I mean, if it's owner-centric, it's a big minus sign because that's a huge risk. And buyers are looking to minimize their risk. So it's but better to have five consultants working for working for you in the business that can carry on the work, whether or not the owner is there. Yes, and even if yes, right, because if somebody is even your consulting firm and merges into, they want to make sure that the customers don't walk away when the owner walks away. There's mm-hmm. really good bench strength there. You asked the question if people could contact me and um, I would invite your listeners to go on to my website which is www.hameladennisphd.com you have to put PhD in not because I'm an egotistical person but because otherwise you'll get a dress designer she makes gorgeous dresses but it won't help you sell your business so it's hameladennisphd.com and you can sign up for my website, and you'll get newsletters. You'll get special, um, like the 10 steps to selling your business is listed in order of month one through three, month three through six. Um, as well as, you know, I love to write blogs on how do you keep your customers and how do you keep your key talent. When you're going Are you going to be going around the country uh, putting on seminars in various cities? You know, I'm I'm uh I would love to. Right now I'm gonna be talking to some rotaries because that's where all the real small businesses are that are more than hopefully sole proprietorships that have employees. Um uh, I'm doing a lot of radio interview. I'm doing I was just uh posted on Forbes dot com and Next Avenue, which is a PBS um link for boomers. Uh, but I haven't got a book tour, book signing tour lined up yet. It's still only five weeks since the book was published. Right, right. I, I, I'm a, a, a member of the uh, downtown Cincinnati Rotary Club, Rotary Club number 17 out of 22,000 clubs around the world. Wow. Uh, and we have about 300 members on any one Thursday at lunchtime. There'll be yeah. 100 to 150 people turn up for lunch. Uh and I'm sure every we want to come to Cincinnati. We don't we don't pay our speakers. Uh, we, yeah. we give our speakers a half hour talk in front of the club. And yeah. uh, if you want the secret of uh, using Rotary clubs around the uh, 
the country. The, the secret is only go to the clubs, the uh, the large clubs with more than uh, uh, 200 members. Because wow. only half people will show up. Well, my foray, my first foray is in Vail, Aspen, and Edwards. And there are like three Rotary clubs coming together to hear me okay. talk for 25 minutes. Yeah, so, yeah, well, Mike, uh, I would love to come talk to your Rotary Club. Just let me know. I like Cincinnati. I used to go out there in business. Oh, okay. We've got a lot of big companies here, too. And we, ha- and, yeah. and we have some, we have some uh, fortune-type publicly held companies in the club, and we have a lot of uh, uh, small and medium-sized businesses. We have a lot of independent business people, and we have uh, nonprofits, and we have some people who are retired and just like to uh, to help with the Rotary purpose. Uh, well, it's a great organization. It's a terrific organization. Right. Um, I'll connect you with the uh, the program chair at the, at the Rotary Club, and uh, perhaps you guys can, can pick a date sometime yeah. over the next six months. Be uh, fun to meet you. Yeah, be fun. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back to this path to the sale uh, before we run out of time. Uh, when, we, when we're dealing with... Uh, business people who've developed their own business uh, in Cincinnati and they want to pass it to the next generation. What do you see as the biggest hurdles to overcome in a family business? Yeah, this is um, a woman who's on faculty in Wisconsin and she has a saying and I wouldn't remember her name because I love to use her quote. She says, family businesses are as agile within a generation as they are fragile across generations. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I mean, the number of, the number of any kind of business that survives after five years and after 15 years and so forth dwindles tremendously. But by the time the third generation comes around, it's something like only 12% of companies still survive. And today's world, it's even worse. I was on a, a Irish public radio interview a couple weeks ago and 75% of Irish small businesses are family owned and they are struggling with having the next generation take over their company. And so it used to be the default was, well, of course, son or daughter will will step in and take over the business and that's not the default position anymore. Less than 50% of family owned businesses are now being sold or transferred to the next generation. And when it gets to the third generation, um, the grandkids, it's even fewer are interested. They have such different uh, views of what their business should be, or what, excuse me, what their career should be. It's, um, and that's why I'm, this particular um, reading card company that I had a chance to get to know was struggling with the same thing. So the grandkids aren't real interested in taking over this business. And you can't wait until they're 21, 22, getting out of college and finding out they don't want to do it. it it's right. a matter of understanding way in advance what's the likely generational transfer that's going to happen. Yeah, when businesses sell, family businesses sell here in Cincinnati, we've seen a lot of uh, businesses evaporate. Uh-huh. Uh, Pam, uh, we, we really have to wrap this up here. Uh, I'm going to be sending you a copy of uh, one of our Sandler books on leadership. And uh, thanks again for being on the show. And Scott, why don't you take it away? 
close out the show. Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.